Hi, this is the Think Queerly podcast, and I'm your host, Darren Steele. Now, today's episode will be a recast from my other podcast, Ideation Thought Leadership. Uh, it's a discussion with my friend and colleague, Nathan Serrato of Queer Conscious, and we talk about joy, how to cultivate joy. What are the emotions and the feelings and the practices so that we can experience more happiness and joy in our lives, but also as LGBTQ people? So I think it's important that I share this on both platforms because it kind of serves both purposes, elevating and empowering LGBTQ people, which is what Think Queerly is all about. And the reason I put it on ideation, thought leadership podcast first, it is a way or a practice to help queer creators and change makers to become more skillful in their lives at making a difference in the world and what better way to do that than to have more peace of mind, self-acceptance, happiness, and joy on a regular basis. And when you feel like that more frequently, more often in your day, how much easier is it to accomplish what it is you want to do? So without any more preamble from me, you're going to love this episode. Enjoy. Hello, this is Ideation, a thought leadership podcast for insight, direction, and emotional alignment. I'm your host, Darren Steele. I'm a mind map mastery transformational coach. I'm also the host of the Think Queerly podcast. Now, if you're a queer thought leader or you're a creative, then you know that a single idea can have the power to change everything, whether that be your work, starting a new project, or trying to change and make the world a, a better place. Now, first of all, I want to welcome, you see somebody new on the screen today, Nathan Serrato to the show, who's the first guest on the Ideation podcast. Nathan, welcome and thank you for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be your first guest on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I said to you that I was going to read your bio, but I thought maybe we could take a couple minutes to uh, have find out a little bit more about who you are, what your background is in coaching, because that's what we both do. But you also have some different areas that you focus on and, of course, kind of a different specialty or, or, or niche. So fill us in. Yeah. So my name is Nathan Serrato, as you know. Uh, my pronouns are he, they. And I started coaching about three years ago. And I got into ICF coaching, which I thought was amazing and unbelievable and powerful. And I was like, and I want some more tools in my tool belt. So then I became a practitioner in NLP, timeline therapy and hypnotherapy. So now I incorporate more of a unconscious mind work and healing. And then I became a, a trainer following that in and all those modalities. So I'm a queer mindset coach, mostly focusing on LGBTQ issues and, and problems and helping people really develop more intimacy in their lives and spiritual reclamation, because those are sexuality and spirituality are some of the most challenging areas for the LGBTQ community. And what I really want for the LGBTQ community is, is for them to step into their leadership and really embody that. I think now is a really amazing time. And there's so many opportunities now that we didn't have even just five, 10 years ago. And when we step into the, our leadership, we can really transform not only our local environments, our local governments, but really the world and how we see LGBTQ people. 
So that's really my focus right now. And I incorporate so many different tools, including yoga and breath work. But yeah, mm-hmm. coaching seems to fit all of it, be the, be the overarching umbrella in it all. Right. So yeah. I'm going to come right back to that, but I realize I didn't say what the topic of today's show is. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about how we can practice and cultivate joy as queer people. So that is really the reason, one of the reasons that I have you on the show. So before we get into that, let's come back to your background. Now, where are you from? I am from Escondido, which is northern San Diego County. Okay. So you're uh, probably a lot warmer than we are at the moment. We're we're well below the freezing point and it's bloody cold this today. <laughs> well, it's like low 60s, but I'm chilly today. <laughs> so it's all I'm, very relative. <laughs> yeah. Well, fantastic. Mm. So the reason I invited you on the show is that we've known each other for some time. Uh, I would say it's probably been about a year and a half or so, if not longer. And probably just algorithmically on Instagram, I started seeing some of your posts and stuff. And then we've had a couple of, uh, you know, Zoom chats to go like, who are you and what do you do? And uh, we had one just recently and it was really lovely. And then you had posted something on Instagram and I'm, I'm leading up to it to make it sound like it's a really bad thing. And it's not at all. <laughs> you, would, you, would, you would post it like a text-based meme, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, this is really interesting. But <laughs> in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, but I want to add my two cents. So it wasn't about oh, Nathan's wrong. No, 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 no. It was just a different way of looking at things. And then you responded and I responded and I said, why don't we talk more about this? Because as you rightly said, it's like we're trying to get to the same point, but kind of from different paths or different directions. So let me read what you wrote and then maybe you can talk about it for a little bit. So you wrote, choosing joy is not about flipping a switch. Choosing joy is a practice of learning to see joy even in the hardest of times and reminding yourself you deserve to experience that joy despite being programmed to believe otherwise. So maybe start with, was what you may not recall, but was there a reason that prompted you to put that out there or something going on? Absolutely. So what I hear so often in, you know, personal growth work in positive space, positive mindset spaces is choosing joy. Like I am choosing joy and I, I live by choosing joy. And and I think people don't really understand that, especially people in the queer community who, you know, have dealt with a lot of traumas in their life that they're like, Oh yeah, if I could just choose joy, I would be joyful all the time. Like that doesn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. That kind of mindset coming from it, from that kind of mindset doesn't work. And, and what I've realized in, in coaching is so many people in the LGBTQ community and, and beyond don't even realize that they're deserving of experiencing joy. Like there's almost this unconscious complex equivalence that experiencing joy is somehow not for them. Like they're right. undeserving and, and of it. So for LGBTQ people or anybody for that matter, who feels undeserving or unworthy of joy, it's really about questioning those beliefs and, and being gentle with yourselves right? Like, of course, you're not going to be able to just flip a switch on and be happy and laughing in an instant when you've experienced what you've experienced. And 
when you can just have compassion for your experiences and start training your brain and practicing it, then you create those new neural pathways where you're like, oh, okay, now I can see joy a little bit more. Now I'm training my brain to see things more optimistically because now I know I deserve it. Now I know I'm worthy of it. But it's really starting as a slow practice. And I feel like that's a little more accessible for the realities of our community. Right. That's the interesting aspect there for me is this this deserving um, part where, you know, depending on how you were brought up, how accepted you were by your immediate uh parents, whatever sort of a dynamic that looked like, um, where you lived, what your schooling was like, if you were forced to or were part of a religious community. Um, If you also aren't able to be out, which would be an expression of self-acceptance, even if you're struggling a little bit with it, that lack of seeing yourself fully represented or that lack in childhood and adolescence of that acceptance is going to lead to that, oh, I don't fit in. I don't belong. Therefore, I'm not deserving. Oh, yeah. 100%. And that, when you're like a child and then an adolescent, like that's early program. That's like, you know that hardwired operating system that you can't change other than ripping out the chip. (laughs) (laughs) Now you can change it. And we both know that, but it's perhaps a little harder because it's that aspect in, in coaching or in therapy or what have you of really peeling back the layers and getting to, I guess, all the different stories. Um, So sometimes there's the going back in the past but also there's the, what can you do in the now, what practices, and we're going to come to that later on. Like, what are those things that you can do to cultivate instead of just choose? Cause like you said, and that's what I liked about the language. Um, do you choose vanilla or do you choose chocolate or do you choose, you know, raspberry or you, do you choose blueberry? And, you know, then it's, it's just a choice, but it's not really a lasting action. That's not transformational. That's just A or B, C or D. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and to me, that, that goes into think positive, which is, you know, in our article I'm working on right now, it's like think positive is, is useless, right? You, we, can, we can talk about positive thoughts in the sense of like, were you thinking thoughts that were predominantly like, like, positive, like positive, um, in a sense of something good, or were you thinking really like negative thoughts or angry thoughts, but positive thinking doesn't change the brain. There's, there's different things that you have to do to actually, uh, focus on the feeling aspect of the emotions that are coming up that then go and influence the, the, uh, the neuroplasticity of the brain. And what do you mean? Exactly. By, by focusing on, on the feeling, can you tell me a little bit more about that? So there is some, there's a couple things I looked at. I looked at, um, a, a far more, um, accessible, call it like pedestrian, like a easy book to read by, by Rick Hansen, his book called the Buddha brain. And then I looked at, um, 
um, a review article, The Neuroscience of Positive Emotions and Affect, Implications for Cultivating Happiness and Well-Being. You know, 30 pages of the review of like some of the latest literature on on these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But what it comes down to is it's noticing the moments that make you feel happy or calm or contented or accepting or joyful. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this, this conscious practice, like whether you put a bandaid on your finger or an elastic band about around your wrist to remind you, it's like, Oh, Oh yeah, that's the reminder. Oh, I just, somebody paid me a compliment today. Okay. What did that feel like? That was a, that was a good feeling. I, I felt gratitude. I felt that I did something good. Well, how would we define that feeling? Like I felt appreciated Mm -hmm. and to spend 10, 15, 20 seconds really trying to stay in that feeling. And the more often you can practice that in the day, in the week, in the month, that's what starts to um, thicken, physically thicken the insular cortex part of your brain uh, which is changing in the neuroplasticity. And that part of the brain will then literally, what, what's the expression? Um, something about wiring together, grow together. I forget what the, the, the neuroscience kind of like joke. It's, it's about more synapses coming together when you're focusing on more of these things, more of those come together. But then you start to either notice and or feel those kinds of emotions that you would rather be having which really just increases your overall well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, so what you're saying here is is just leaning into those moments that that you feel that joy and you notice yeah. that joy coming up and creating more of those in your life. So then you have more opportunity for joy. Yeah, exactly. The opposite would be a vicious cycle. This is like the the wonderful positive cycle, right? So if I've worked with a client that one of his complaints has been, you know, I don't feel much joy or I don't have much happiness or or passion. And because he focuses on the lack, Hmm. the converse here is true by constantly focusing. And then he deals with depression and anxiety. So that means he's even reinforcing greater hardwiring in the brain. That's like, I don't have this. I don't feel accepted. I don't feel loved. (sighs) And, you know, that when you're in that space, there's a lot of work to be done um, that, you know, on the side of the coach or the practitioner or the therapist requires a lot of compassion and a lot of patience um, and I think you said it like the, the gentle reminders and work, uh, with someone like that, who, who wants to get better, but doesn't have the tools and has become so habituated in, um, this disempowering way of feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, that, I think that's where, Cognitive behavioral therapy, as great as it is a tool, it's very useful, right? We know that our thoughts do create our emotions, our emotions drive our behaviors, our behaviors get our results. So when you are thinking these negative thoughts, (laughs) I think that the misconception there is, oh, I need to change this negative thought to a positive thought right away. And that takes so much effort in. It's just a constant struggle in this battle, like, 
And then it almost becomes shamey and blaming to yourself. Like, why am I not more positive? Why am I not thinking these positive thoughts? And so it'll, we have to be careful that we don't just add an extra layer of shame to the negative thoughts we're already experiencing. So I, I, I like your approach in that just noticing when that feeling comes up and then adding more of that into your life. Um, my approach, at least with, with my clients, is, is a little more from the, the shadow side, you could say, or just addressing those negative thoughts. Because when you look at those negative thoughts and negative emotions, I always ask, why? Where does that come from? And what is the, the root of these negative thoughts and emotions. And when we get to the root of that, typically there's some limiting belief where when they were a kid, they decided I'm unworthy. I'm not good enough. Right. When did they decide that? And how can we shift that unconsciously so that we release it and then they move Mm -hmm. forward Mm -hmm. and then they're not worried about that because now we've already addressed it. We've moved through We've like faced the fear. We face the lion in the den. Essentially, we know what their greatest fear is. They've allowed themselves to feel it, honor it, and hold space for it, and release it instead of resisting it. Because many times yeah. we have this unconscious resistance to sitting with our negative emotions. Yeah. And you and I know very well in the gay community, it's all about resisting, running away, avoiding going to the gay bars, drinking your emotions away. We don't want to mm-hmm. feel it. So. Mm-hmm in the same capacity as cultivating those moments for joy is, is also cultivating moments to experience sadness, to experience the fear and just sit with it and be curious with it so that we don't unconsciously just create that constant resistance against it because that in itself can create this like numbing effect moving forward where we're now we're numb to positive and negative emotions. That's interesting. And I guess if I'm, hearing what you're saying correctly. And I suppose the way I think about it or the way I would approach that as we don't want to avoid these things, which is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's certainly a challenge and a different approach to be able to sit with some of these like dark side or so-called negative emotions from a mindful perspective. Like, okay, I'm wondering if you might have like a concrete example of when you would have worked with someone, whatever, you know, a dark side emotion was. And as an example of the like CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy, how you would speak to or frame the practice of because what I'm guessing is like, okay, let's go into feeling that really intensely no, it's like, how, how do you describe, I'm, I'm guessing you're probably looking for a languaging as well as the story around how to describe. Yeah. Um, so then that goes into the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain to try mm-hmm. and get more analytical. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So I, I can give an example. I was working mm-hmm. with a client who, for whatever reason, didn't want to talk about his past. Everything was about just focusing on the future and his goals. And, and I'm realizing, oh, he's just repeating his pattern that he learned where he would feel emotion as a child. And because of how he was raised in his family, feeling emotions made him a failure, right? That was his complex equivalence. I can't feel my negative emotion because now I'm a failure and unworthy of my parents' love. Wow. So he adopted that strong belief as a child. And in our sessions, 
he's resisting these negative emotions, even talking about them. Mm-hmm. So what does he do? He controls his in situation. So he, he controls his reputation by overachieving. Right. So I'm, I'm not going to feel this. I'm just going to stay motivated and achieve all the things. And then, then my reputation's great and I'm worthy of love. He controlled his environment by constantly traveling Right. So he, anytime he was unhappy, he just like, I'm just going to move to a new city. I'm going to move to a new country. So it was all about control. And then in that session, he's trying to control the session by redirecting my questions to something else. So I, I made this observation joke. It's like, whoa, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I'm avoiding. I don't want to feel I'm, I'm mm-hmm. scared to feel because then that means I'm the failure that my parents thought I was. So why this is so powerful to, to be able to acknowledge that is to recognize that feeling is, is part of the human process, right? It's like life isn't just about joy. I mean, we're, we're human. We're going to have a, a mix and a range of emotions, and we deserve to feel all of them. We deserve the joy, and we deserve to feel the sadness and the anger and the fear just as much as we deserve to feel the joy. So once we're able to recognize that for him, feeling emotion meant he was a failure. He was able to feel it. He was able to sit with it and actually release it by, by crying. And, and we did a meditative process to really allow those emotions to move through. And then once we felt it, then we added our prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex learnings. We added our conscious learnings so that mm-hmm. he can then reinforce, well, what can I learn from this experience? What, mm-hmm. Who am I now because of this experience? And who do I want to be more of? And that's really what created created the long lasting change for him, where he's leaning into relationships now. He's not as afraid of intimacy. He's, he's being honest with with all of his emotions, right? So, so that's that's a more concrete example. I, I hope that makes a little more sense. <laughs> no, it does. That's great. Um, you know, it reminds me of something um, I take from one of my coaches that there's no such thing as positive and negative emotions. There are just emotions. Right. We, we may cognitively decide, oh, this is a negative emotion and this is a positive emotion, but the emotion in itself is, is, is like, um, like a, a program drive within our operating system that we, we can't really affect. There are certain emotions like lust or hunger or thirst we could try all our, you know, we can try bloody hard to manage those things, but they are going to surface. They're going to come out, right? And oh, just sort of as a, a an aside here, you think about the very fundamentalist uh, religious individuals that try to suppress lust. How messed up that becomes for people and how they are trying to enforce that prejudiced and and oppressive way of being these individuals building upon this example you gave me of working with this client are so afraid of going into those core emotional states which is part of being human that those people with power are then seeking to limit everyone else's ability to feel anything freely human yeah and that, that unconscious resistance, you suppress it, it's just going to explode, right? We, we suppress anything. Like, it's just waiting to, to be felt. Um, 
And it probably won't come out in a good way. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, and, and I really love that, like, that there are no good and bad emotions. Because all those emotions serve a purpose. So it's just recognizing and being curious about it. Oh, I'm feeling angry right now. What, what's, what, where's this anger coming from? How can I just be curious, honor whatever needs are coming up around this anger? Maybe someone's, you know, violating your boundaries. Maybe someone is, is being rude to you. And, and so that anger is serving a purpose saying, oh, maybe I need to say something. Maybe I need to ask for something. Maybe I need to uh, make a change in my life that I'm not changing. So being curious about those negative emotions and honoring them also makes room for joy, right? Because once I've addressed the need that this anger is coming up, and then now I have more room to deal with the actual joy and cultivate more of these experiences because I'm not focused on this unconscious like vibration that's coming up from the anger because I've addressed it and looked at it. Something I've learned in my studies uh, around the mind and and neuroscience is that uh, if you think just I know there's different theories, but the triune brain theory of sort of the uh, the oldest part of the brain, the reptilian, the amygdala, fight, flight, or freeze, right? Just that, you know, whether you're being chased by a bear or whether you step out off the curb and one of your senses picks up that there's a speeding car, but you actually didn't consciously see it and bam, your body just reacts and your heart rates up and you've you've just pulled yourself back almost unconsciously, but it's the amygdala, that part of the brain doing the work. And then there's your mammalian brain, which is more your social safety, where that really gets developed um, as a child. If you get enough love and attention and care from whoever your parental or caregiver was and eye contact as a child and physical contact, that's how you develop that acceptance and connection and care for other people. And then our our prefrontal cortex, the logical thinking part of the brain. So this idea that if the needs of the older parts of our brain are the reptilian and the mammalian part of the brain that are really much more connected to the brain stem and, and biologically, physiologically, that's more important because that's kind of really like the older in wired operating system that, you know, you really can't change how your amygdala works. <laughs> you can, you know, it's, it's, it acts in many cases before, um, our feelings, which come as a prefrontal cortex observation of the emotions that come up such as lust or hunger or anger or, or joy, for example. Right. So if, the mammalian brain and the reptilian brain, think of them as the animals. If the animals in the zoo are not happy, there ain't going to be very good thinking. Yeah. Often the needs of those brains are the, the darker side of uh, the emotions, which are like fear or panic or rage. If any of those things are not being addressed, you know, forget being able to have a logical, thinking, creative state of mind. Yeah, I, I love the way that you phrase that around around the needs of each mm-hmm. of those those parts of the brain, right? Or I, I like to, to talk about it with my clients as, as the different voices in your brain too, because yeah. sometimes it feels like I'm, I'm different people. But ad- addressing those needs of all the different parts of you, all the different parts of the brain, once you address those needs then the animals in the zoo 
are peaceful. Right? Yeah. I'm um, thinking of that song, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> but, okay, I do have a question for you, Darren. So do you think that we can't address the amygdala part of the brain? From From what I know and what I've read so far, that my understanding at this point would be that I don't know if we can change actually what's happening um, on a conscious level um, about what's happening on the level of our amygdala, our fight, flight, freeze. I don't know if that I'm, I'm sure there's probably research out there about how can that be affected. There may be like drug therapies, for example. There's certainly a lot more training we can do with our prefrontal cortex, with the logical thinking part of our brain, that would be the extent that I know um, for how much more awareness we have of, oh, am I sort of aligned with or in tune with or being mindful of, you know, are, are the animals calm in the zoo? Um, am I taking care of myself? Am I doing whatever practices like physical exercise, sleeping enough, eating well enough? Um, if I'm aware of what my triggers are, um, am I able to back away and, and you know, come back to calmness? But so that's the long answer to no, I'm not sure. So if you've got an answer, <laughs> I'm challenging you because I'm, I'm like, that just sounds so limiting to our health and what we're capable of. If we can't, you know, make any recovery in the amygdala, then like, then it's just all prefrontal cortex. Like we have mm. to live with fight, flight, and freeze our entire lives, which I don't think is true. The, the reason I added timeline therapy and hypnotherapy into my work, because I, I feel like that gets more into the unconscious mind and those right. unconscious parts of the brain. You know, I was, I was reading the, these, these statistics about where happiness comes from. And so 10%, they said it comes from your life circumstances, which is great. Only 10% of mm-hmm. your ability to experience happiness or your inability, it comes from your life circumstances. 50% is biological and generational, which mm-hmm. means in our genetic code. And then 40% is from our own choices which is great. Like those are pretty good odds. Like 40% of it, like I'm in control of that's pretty good. So, but it was, it's interesting because like the impact of the generational biological genetic code on from like the trauma, our grandparents experience growing up in the war, growing up in poverty, whatever that's that impacts us. Yet they've also, the science is new on this, but they've also realized that when you heal, the genetic also changes. It changes the physiology of it. Yeah. So knowing that, I don't see why we can't also change the fight, flight, or freeze responses when it comes to these, when we really tap into the unconscious mind and work with those deep limiting beliefs and unconscious negative emotions that that we're suppressing. There's... um couple points that I want to touch on. Um, I think some of what you're talking about there is uh, Martin Seligman um, has done a lot of work, in, especially in his book, Flourish. He talks a, a lot about that um, genetic aspect of some people have a predisposition biologically to perhaps be more of like a downer or more on the apparently seemingly being more negative or more critical um, where other people are like very ebullient and very happy and bubbly. And 
when I read that, I thought that's fascinating because I've also, I've often wondered because, you know, I definitely fall into the category of the former. And I think I would get that from my mother because that's very much my mother, this tendency to always look at what's wrong with this. And now, so to say that, and then to come back to speaking to your point, um, so there can be a lot of conscious choice about practices I can do so that whatever your percentage was that you said, like 40% is our our choice about our happiness. So the choices I would make about my happiness are, if this is true, that, you know, maybe biologically or genetically, I tend to be more this way. Well, I can still better manage that. I might not be able to control that per se, but I can manage that because I'm being mindful and I'm um, aware of it. And I can become better in the sense of how I wish to be uh, with respect to that, knowing in my social interactions with other people, if I'm always negative and unhappy and cranky and angry, well, I'm going to be really unhappy and lonely, right? (laughs) Or I'm not going to have a lot of clients because people will be like, that fucking asshole, you know, because he's such a jerk. (laughs) I've never experienced you like that. (laughs) Yeah. So... (laughs) Then the the final point, I guess, would be maybe a further point of clarity around the amygdala. Um, there is some research I've read, and it's some of it is like you really have to wrap your head around some of this because I'm not a biologist and I'm not a neuroscientist, and I've I've gotten better at reading some of these these actual research papers and trying to discern, you know, what is exactly being said after you get out your dictionary and understand what some of the big words are, right? Um, But our amygdala, as far as I know, works in such a way so quickly, it is meant to be immediately reactive, pre-conscious thought reactive. And for a good reason, it is meant to protect us from mortal danger, right? Now, if we didn't have that, we're, you know, we're walking along and a car is coming along and you're like, oh, I'm going to get hit by this car. Let me think about if I should move. (laughs) No, our amygdala says, I ain't even going to let you get to the point in time where you're thinking about the fact that a car is hitting towards you at 120 kilometers an hour. I'm just going to make you jump or run. Right. And where I think there's crossover because like the brain is, is a unit. It's not like, well, we've got this part and it's the amygdala and it is not influenced by other parts of the brain. That's definitely not true. Right. So if you go into fight as a response, as a reaction, the, the challenge is, as you probably know as well, is that the, the, that part of our brain hasn't caught up with our modern world. That was really meant to protect us out in the wild when we were humans without a formally organized society and tall buildings and cars and homes that we were protected in, right? Um, We really had to be able, and where we weren't the alpha species, where sharks and tigers were the alpha species. And it was only till we understood social grouping and we worked together in bands of people that we could work together to say, capture a tiger with 10 or 15 or 20 people hunting that we were able to finally learn how to become the alpha species. So when you look at fight, the person that's always like, bam, ready to get into an argument or bam, ready to get into a fist fight, 
I think part of that, Nathan, is that they're also coming more from the mammalian part of their brain where they're not feeling accepted. They're not feeling care. Maybe they're not feeling connection to other people and or they're creating this constant negative world like sorry the trucker convoy that just finally got taken out of ottawa ontario canada where it's like you know we need to overthrow the government because i don't have any freedom and having to wear a mask is like limiting my freedom and and a complete uh refusal to acknowledge that their demonstration is actually impeding other people's freedoms. And they're always in this agitated state, but it doesn't have to stay that way. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I see what you're saying, but my goodness, it's a very complex equation. <laughs> Although you, you just said, you kind of agreed with me, Darren, you just said it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't have to stay that way. So yeah. I, I'm excited. Well, can I just make one more comment on this? Cause oh, please. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm going to relate it back to joy because I know that's what we're supposed to be talking about. Mm-hmm. It's this. So I, I, I'll use a personal example. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to being able to experience and joy, joy in my life, the two biggest things that have gotten in the way have been my religious trauma this like deep Catholic embedded fear of going to hell where anytime I wanted to experience some kind of spirituality, it was like, Oh, you're going to hell, honey. Like that was my amygdala talking. Nope. We're going to hijack you. We're going to send you into this like thought train. And then my other one was around the sexual trauma I I experienced where anytime I wanted sexual pleasure or wanted to experience it, my brain's like, this is not safe. Um, I don't know if you've read the the body keeps the score. It's a, it's a great book about trauma, but when you experience it, it resets your alarm systems, as you're saying. So it's so in so I, I've had experience where my ex boyfriend, you know, he would touch my hand or my knee, and then my alarm system goes off because of my past experiences. Amygdala says, "Nope, that's not safe. That's not safe." <clears throat> I've been able to retrain those alarm systems and be like, "Oh, right, the, I don't mm-hmm. need those anymore." I so. For me, it was it was timeline therapy or, or hypnotherapy, whatever it was. But you can 100%, in my opinion, change those alarm systems when they're not mm-hmm. serving. Now, something mm-hmm. like getting hit by a car, yeah, you want to, you're going to want to keep that <laughs> because you want to stay alive, obviously. Um, but when we're able to look at what's stopping us, look at those traumas, whatever's coming up that's stopping us from experiencing pleasures and joys in life, we can really question what, if they're even serving us anymore. And, and if they're not, then we can question it and constantly question it so that we don't have to limit our, our joy, our capacity for joy. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, it's like, we're supposed to be talking about joy, uh, <laughs> which we are inadvertently. It's, it, I think it's really important. The, the paths that we're taking and I was, uh, I knew and sort of desired with this conversation that we would uh, bounce back and forth around a couple of different things, because uh, as you said in, you know, the, the, the meme you posted on Instagram, um, it's not just about choosing joy, right? That would be um, almost throwing to the curb all the work that would be required and all the experiences that we are simply going to have in life that might not be joyful, uh, but how can we, as you were saying, that 40% work within that capacity of our brain to choose 
how it is we want to feel to create the kind of happiness that we want to have. Um, there, there's a section in Alan Downs's uh, book, the the author of The Velvet Rage, Overcoming the Pain of Growing Up Gay in a Straight Man's World, um, towards the end of the book. And he's, he's talking about passion. And when you were talking about your one client, I was just reminded of this because he talks about a number of clients he's worked with and he had dealt a lot with gay men and that's how he developed like gay shame. And I think this could be called like LGBTQ shame, anyone who grew up feeling different and couldn't properly identify. And every message that they saw in the world uh, either didn't empower them or just didn't recognize them, right? And you talked about your client not being able to experience emotions uh, because of past trauma. So I just want to quote this from Alan, and then we can start digging more into joy and cultivating it. So he writes, joy is fundamentally different than most emotions. Other emotions like shame or sadness once triggered can last for 20 minutes or longer. Often these emotions last much longer because we engage in behaviors that cause the chemicals within our bodies that create these emotions to continually be released. And just interject here, what I like about this is because he's not going into all the technical terms, so it's really easy to follow along, right? So continuing. For example, when you first feel sad, you have a tendency to think sad thoughts and you remember other sad events in your life. This in turn causes your sadness to continue. If you continue to do to dwell on sad memories and thoughts, your overall mood becomes one that is dominated by sadness. Joy, on the other hand, tends to be quick and fleeting emotion that can fly past us and go unnoticed. Once it fires within our brains, it may be felt for as little as a few seconds. Like, for instance, seeing the, uh, the face of an old friend who you haven't seen in years. Um, and then he goes on and talks about passion. But I, th- I thought the interesting aspect of, of joy is it is that almost euphoric stage, if you want to say, above happiness. And it is fleeting. Um, it's almost like a flow state condition in a sense, but like a very short flow state condition. And you can experience it many times a day, but it is very much a peak of the emotional experience. Um, and to imagine being able to experience more moments of joy, is just a greater sense of well-being, a greater ability to thrive in life, a, a greater possibility to connect with your passions, because your, your passions and whatever it is that really motivates you to do what you want to do or that you love to do, there are probably lots of moments of joy in that. So some, some thoughts on that from you. Hmm. My thoughts on that, Darren, I'm, I'm trying, I'm being a little bit of a contrarian today. (laughs) Okay. Go for it. I, I understand what he's saying. And then I'm like, well, have I ever experienced joy that isn't fleeting? And I, and I'm like, I want to, I'm curious about this and mm-hmm. the times I have, which are few, I'll be totally honest, that is mindfulness. Like I, I grew up near a Buddhist monastery and they have these days of mindfulness. You go and when I'm in that mindful setting and, you know, everything is in silence and constantly meditating, it creates this very stable baseline of peace and joy, not like the euphoric joy that he's describing here. 
But when I think about mindfulness and how powerful that is, I mean, and then there's got to be something to where are we getting our joy from? You know, mm. what's, what's stimulating our joy? So I just have more questions, Darren. <laughs> well, you, you raise a really interesting point because this is the point of having conversations like this. Um, and why in my mind, I was thinking this is like a dialectical conversation. So we're, we're both uh, supporting and encouraging, but also trying to prove each other's opinions or beliefs um, and to learn and grow from it. So like, honestly, I hadn't, I've, I've always considered joy to be fleeting and I haven't looked at that um, as a negative. I've just seen it as that. It's such a peak experience. It doesn't mean that you can't only have it once a day or once a week. You could have it multiple times in the day, but it's, it's kind of like the, I guess it's kind of like the kettle coming to a boil. It comes to the boil. And the water can't cook any hotter. I mean, you can let it run on the boil, which is interesting. You can let it simmer. And that speaks to his like joyful experiences or experiencing like longer durations of joy. Um, why not differentiate between like a real peak joy experience, which is building, 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 building. Right. And I, I, but I guess I, what I wonder is, uh, what I was hoping to find, and I, I would have had to probably dig a lot deeper into research is the physical manifestations of joy. Um, like how it's maybe felt on the skin, um, how it might show up in electrocardiograph readings and things like that. Like, and then how does, how do we even fully identify if we're trying to measure joy versus happiness? Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Darren. So what, what's, what's important to you about recognizing that joy is fleeting? What's important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's kind of like a coaching question. I would ask. (laughs) In in an effort for me to understand, you know, your, your, I guess why you brought that quote, you know, I, I want to understand that better. Yeah. I guess the, the, the quote has always stuck with me. Um, I may have, uh, sort of framed that, which I read as something that made sense. Um, and, uh, I guess compared it to real world or my own real world experience. Um, in that I tend to at least feel on my own experiential level that when I experience joy, it is more towards the euphoric. Um, And probably it would be doing a disservice to the experience or, or framing joy in this conversation to say it's like a nanosecond or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm just thinking, Toronto had world pride in 2014. And that was honestly, I remember the Friday night, it was, it was perfect weather the whole weekend. It was really, really fortunate because sometimes pride in Toronto end of June, it could be rainy and cold. And this was just perfect. And it was so busy because of course it was very hyped and it was like a lot of commercialism and a lot of Americans and a lot of foreign tourists came. Uh, So there was just so many people, but there was a, 
One of the places where a dance party was is at the 519 Community Center. They call it the green space. And it is a green space. Uh, Lots of trees, lots of people. It's an outdoor festival. It was the afternoon. And it was just hair standing on my arms, like joy, because the music was pounding. So there was like this tribalism. There was this connectivity. There were so many queers out. And it was like, these are my people. And it's like world pride. And so there were all of these conditions that happened and came together that created a, a very long duration of joy. And if like, if I was to say like, here's the peak experience of joy, over you know the course of a couple of hours, it you know it it probably didn't dip it dipped down, but it, it would just constantly kept coming up. Um, so there would just be moments where, and I'm sure you've probably experienced this, and you can experience it without music. But when you're in that crowd and you're in that feeling and you're in that state, you're like, oh, we're celebrating. Oh, I'm so happy to be here at Pride. And you see someone, you know, a moment of joy they haven't seen in a while. That song comes on, you're like, oh, I love this, right? And boom, it's like. <laughs> It's like taking a drug like ecstasy or something because you are just being put into that euphoric state. So um, I would admit, <laughs> no, not, not so much that I'm contradicting myself, but I haven't thought uh, until you asked the question about what sort of experiences have I had um, that were certainly more. So I guess another answer to your question or another aspect to look at that perhaps in day-to-day living um, your so-called nine to five or Monday to Friday um, the moments in the day might be a little bit more shorter um, unless you happen to be doing the kind of work that allows you to be in a joyful state all the time. And that's an interesting question for consideration on another day. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, no, as you're, you're describing that, I've definitely had experiences like that. And those are, but those are more rare. Yeah. So I, I, I get, I understand the, the quote. I, I just don't like putting limits, like fleeting on my joy. I, that sounds limiting to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's okay. Like I'm, I'm free from that. We, I, I understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe let's, let's get perhaps a little bit more concrete then. Um, and in that this is something I know you consciously do for yourself and you work on with your clients and some of the group rock programs that you do. Um, how do you then Well, start with for yourself? And if that extends to how you do this with other people, what are the one or two really important things or practices that you do for yourself that, that cultivates greater happiness um, exploration, um, and joy. A more recent practice for me. Well, I guess it's recent, but, uh, gratitude. I have a gratitude journal, mm-hmm. a gratitude journal. So every day is, is being intentional about my gratitude because it's such a high vibrating emotion. It's, it, it's hard to not feel joyful when you're reflecting on what you're grateful for. Mm-hmm. So, that is something that I recommend to most of my clients who are wanting to experience more joy and add to joy. Mm-hmm. And then something that I've just always done. That's just been like my version of going to church has been hiking. 
just being out in nature, not just for the psychological benefits of, you know, enjoying the beauty, but the physiological responses that your body gets from being outdoors and reacting to the healthy bacteria in the soil and, and touching and feeling and smelling. It's just such an experiential thing. And maybe I'm, I'm a little lucky being out here in San Diego, we have hiking weather all year round. Yeah. Um, so, but that's, that's been like my church. It's where I, I go and I reset and it just creates more of, of that baseline for me to handle the week. Yeah. How about you, Darren? What do you do? <laughs> Making a note. Making a note about something to talk about. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of different things. Um, used to listen to a lot more music and I just find, um, as I've gotten older, um, music for me, often I think, you know, the younger you are, it tends to be maybe just like it's, it's pop culture. Right. And it's part of like growing up and being a teenager and all those sorts of things. Um, so I will sometimes have just often the exact same music playing if I need to focus or something, because I, then I can tune it out, but it gives me that little bit of distraction. So there will be periods, like maybe every couple of weeks or once a week, I'll just put on the headphones on a Friday night and I'll open up Spotify and I check like my, my new music. And then like, ah, oh, it's just like, it's such a, it's a release. And that feeling music, mm-hmm. it's, it transports me. And so that, that something that transports me, I think you've described uh, the experiences you have now reading really good fiction. Um, I've been on a, a binge with Felice Picano. He's my favorite author. Um, he's primarily known for a lot of his, uh, uh, gay themed novels. Uh, but he's also written phenomenal memoirs and, uh, science fiction. And his first few books, uh, were not, uh, gay themed at all, but I, I will get into a, paragraph by him and i'll be just like oh like just breath taken away and have to come back and have to read it again because of the way it's constructed and the visualization and then just the fascination with like how was he able to even write this sentence like this that is so like incredible like it's a piece of art on its own and that reminds me i it's kind of hard to see. Like in my office here, I've got a whole bunch of art, prints, uh, art that was given to me. Um, it there's something about music and art that creates a transporting, a transformative uh, experience. It takes you out of the moment that you can experience in flow state. It's the same kind of feeling, which is this floating enjoy right it is just like the sensations of overwhelm by the what for me is like the absolute expression of like creative talent that is like a hyper appreciation that i'm experiencing as joy and then having a dog which we don't have right now because <laughs> going out with walking a dog and getting that connection and like uh we're hoping to foster uh very soon and this is something i miss i used to have moments of joy more moments of joy every single day when i had a dog mm-hmm. because there's just it's just who they are and when you have a good connection and you care for them well and they know they're loved 
and you get that connection with them and or um, you just see them out playing. Play is such an important aspect for cultivating joy, right? Um, play in the sense of exploration. And a dog would always remind me, it's like, go play, go play, Darren. It doesn't mean just sex. I mean, it, it means play in the sense of having fun and exploring and, and trying something new or taking an art class or, you know, going on a hike or whatever those things may be. Yeah. Uh, it, when you when you said that about playing and, and with the dog and taking your dog, it reminded me of my my nieces who I just, I love spending time with my nieces and mm. they're, they're just so innocent. They have this just sense of wonder and, and I, I love things like play along with them. And, you know, I, I mimic their sense of wonder and I'm like, Ooh, let's, let's go explore. Let's run around outside. And it's, it's so freeing because it, it just frees you from the roles you're having to play. You're just like, let's just be present like that. Yeah. And, uh, dancing for me is, is huge. So being able to move my body and play with movements is just mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of pole dancing from you on Instagram lately. What's up with that? You know, <laughs> I actually just signed up to do a, a showcase in April, so you'll be seeing more. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's interesting. How and why? When you're doing that, when you take a a video that you decide you're going to post on Instagram, I can see it. What about it is making you feel or experience joy? Oh my goodness. So much, Darren. There is so much. (laughs) And specifically about the, the pole dancing? Yeah, especially like when you've been in heels. Oh my goodness. There's a lot going on there. Darren, when I zip up <laughs> my eight inch platform heels, <laughs> let me tell you, it's like, there's this power to it. There's this, this feeling like, first of all, I'm, it makes me eight inches taller. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you know what I, I can describe it this way. It's almost like freeing myself from gender constructs and being able to experience the the masculinity and, you know, the, the of dancing and having to hold yourself up on a pole and, and then the femininity of the flow and the heels and the movement both together. And it's just like, there's no limits, like anything is possible. So it's almost like a euphoric thing for me. Um, not to mention, I'm sure the exercise also pumps endorphins into my brain, but I'm not consciously thinking about that. I'm like, just, this is fun. I feel sexy. I feel amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I would imagine that, what you said is the, the embracing of the masculine, the feminine, what may have been taught to you as, Oh, that's bad. Shouldn't do that. I mean, that's like joy is freeing. If we, if, if whether it's right or wrong, but if we think of it as like a, the, kind of one of the most euphoric states of happiness, well, what is happiness other than feeling free and and what is feeling free other than being able to completely express who you are without worry yeah. right. so correct me if i'm hearing this right but i i think what what's coming back to in this is is that present moment just being totally present 
not from worry. It's like free from the constructs of the past, free from worry about the future. And it's back to this present moment and this mindfulness. Yeah, absolutely. I think we just figured it out. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's, I really appreciate that how you've, you've brought that back around to that because um, joy is not going to be experienced in a past event. It's experienced now, right? Yes. That's it. And so if you want to experience more of that, uh, what we talked about earlier on in the conversation is that when, when you are realizing those, those, those kinds of emotions that you want to feel more of, call it happiness or feeling calm or peace of mind, um, or even in joyful moments that to be able to like switch on and go, Oh, appreciate this feeling in the sense of experientially appreciate this feeling, stay in this feeling. What's it feel like? Where's it coming from? What's happening on my body? What's happening in my mind? Does, do I feel it in my skin? And take as long as you can to feel that feeling as often as you can. And you can only do that now. Like, but that is what is actively physiologically making changes in the neuroplasticity of your brain to create more possibility for feeling that way. Um, and what I was writing about in the article that I, I, I mentioned, you know, uh, why positive thinking doesn't work is that doing more of this practice of spending these 10 to 20 seconds of really experiencing the appreciation of these feelings also ends up developing, developing greater empathy. And so Empathy means you're going to have simply more understanding, more humility, more connection, more acceptance, and more care for other people. So imagine if we could teach more people how to experience joy, how much a happier place this world would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and just just to add on to that, you the you the more capacity of empathy you have then for other people, you, you also have that for yourself. Right. And that's that self-compassion, that self-empathy you know, which just creates more capacity for joy. And I have to say, Darren, I'm, I'm experiencing joy in this conversation. This is really exciting. I can just feel very present with you. Like this is just a fun conversation. So conversations give me joy. I'm an extrovert. So that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm actually thinking right now about experiencing the little tingle that I'm feeling. That's kind of going down my neck across my chest as appreciation through gratitude for what you've just said. And I mentioned that because uh, this past weekend I was in a mental funk. I was telling you about this earlier. Um, I physically wasn't feeling that great. I had family visiting. So I was fighting, fighting these feelings that doesn't, that doesn't solve the problem. Right. (laughs) And, you know, then there was some tension with my partner and I and all of that. And then when I started the preparation for this call today, and I was reviewing some of my notes for, from my recent uh, neuroscience of transformational coaching training. And then I was doing some other research into uh, some research uh, papers and such. I thought, Oh, I so need this. <laughs> I so needed this for myself to remind myself um, of what I could have done that like, just as a reminder that I, I went really far down uh, a path, a spiral that I hadn't been down in a while, but it had been building and I hadn't paid attention. 
and I had forgotten to notice. And so this, this preparation was just a reminder. It's like, okay, somehow you have to give yourself a trigger or a post-it note or something, Darren, to remind yourself of, ah, okay, okay. If you're starting to feel this way, you know what you can do. You have the tools, you know this. Um, so yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. I, I resonate with that so much, Darren. It's like, I don't know what it is. Maybe is this idea of, of I'm a life coach and I, I, sometimes I feel like, Oh, I have to have it all together. And, and I forget to like that. I also have to use these tools. I'm also human. Right. So I, I guess what, what do you do when you have those negativity, when that negativity comes up or those negative emotions, like what is that process like for you? Uh, it's, it's got a lot better. Uh, man, I used to dwell in the negativity and like add to it and add to it. Similar to like the, the, the quote from Alan Downs, like uh, I would get down or sad or angry. And then I would just think about what else was making me angry and just keep adding to it. Um, the big thing probably for me is, is movement. Um, like actually getting out of the house, going outside. Um, I really have to change my physical state. Uh, you know, something that I forgot about doing that I just remember, um, something that's so quick and so easy is to get out a jump rope because you can just like jump rope a hundred times and holy cow, that is amazing. And it's so fast and so quick. It's like, if you just, for whatever reason, don't have time for the walk, but that in itself can be an excuse, right? Um, for me, it has to be almost something like that. Uh, and it just reminded me, um, I'm hoping that I can get back to a gym soon. I haven't been to a gym in two years because we've had tighter lockdowns definitely than in Canada, than in the United States. Um, and I would prefer to go back to the gym that I went to, but it's a, a university gym and they haven't quite opened up to the full public yet. Uh, but that aspect of actually pushing something heavy, working against resistance, um, is something that has kept my more challenging, um, more dark side emotions under control. And I haven't been able to like hit that kind of resistance at home with the equipment I have to the same extent that I could do it with what was available at the gym. So there has been over the last two years, something dramatically missing in my life uh, that helps me better manage that. So it's a great question because it's really important to know, like, what are the little things you can do, but what's the primary thing? And the primary thing for me is it's not about duration. It's just about the habit. And, and I think I hold a lot of tension in my body. Physical resistance training releases the emotional stress tension. Yeah. That's it. I love it. I love and And... You using the word habit, I, I freaked out when you said that because it, again, it, it's about adding these things to your life. Like, like you were saying in the beginning, adding these joyful moments, making them habits throughout your day, and then, and you know, I think that's what I meant. You know, when I when I posted that meme, is, is it's a practice. Mm -hmm. It's a practice of choosing joy. It's like I'm practicing to choose to add joyful moments into my life, and I'm practicing to see them when they're there and to feel them and know I'm deserving of feeling them, mm -hmm. and. 
And then just, just back to what you were saying about the jump rope and the moving through it. Like, cause sometimes it's hard to see the joy when you're like going down those sad spirals, like, come on, we've all been there. And it's like, yeah. what? I don't even know what's wrong, but I just know this sucks right now. <laughs> this emotion yeah. sucks. I don't know what to do. So something like jump roping is like your pattern interrupt. Like, let me just interrupt the cycle of thought. Mm-hmm. Like, like for me, I, I just have to go on, on a hike. Like I'm just going to go to a new place, go on a hike. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll bring my journal and I'll just cry and write all my feelings and just leave it up there on the mountain. Like for me, that that's what I have to do to move beyond it. Um, but cause it, cause it's hard. Life is mm-hmm. hard. <laughs> just have a moment for that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways. Yeah. Amazing. I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think we've covered a, a lot of sort of the, the talking points that I had noted and while just letting it be very free flowing, um, any sort of final thoughts or observations that you might have? Uh, that was fun. Thank you, Darren. <laughs> Always a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I joked with with you how we could probably just have like a philosopher's slumber party, and that would be awesome. Just yeah, <laughs> we got to do this more. So um, I, I guess nothing really. Um, do we have a conclusion about joy? <laughs> What's your conclusion? Get more of it. <laughs> Get more of it, and you know, through natural means. You know, maybe that's an interesting. Maybe that's like, a, yeah, I wonder how much longer this might take us, but it might be interesting to talk about the wrong ways, quote unquote, or unhealthy ways of trying to find joy. So, you know, we want to be mindful of like, hey, there's nothing wrong with smoking a joint. There's nothing wrong with having a few drinks. There's nothing wrong even if you want to go out and take ecstasy and go dancing. But if that becomes something as a form of replacement for the ways that you can naturally feel the danger is you could go too far down the point where you're looking at other substances to try and create sort of like the dopamine and other neurochemical releases that might lead to experiencing joy. And, you know, a lot of people have talked about, you know, when they've been in addiction recovery, um, how hard it is to feel those those pleasurable emotions again, because they then became uh, chemically habituated and attached to uh, the thing that they use to either suppress feeling or to think that 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 would help them feel joyful or more happy. Yeah. 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 And to me, that's like, that's really a fleeting joy, like 100%. And it's about, building those things into your life, like you're saying, building those habits into your life that the joy is more of a maintained state as this, instead of this drastic up and down where you feel these negative emotions and then you have to resist those negative emotions. So then you go get high or you go get drunk or go have random sex, which are all great. I do all those things in moderation. Mm -hmm. And I just have to ask myself, am I running away from something? Right. Am I, am I not, making changes in my life that I need to make right. or is this really just an addition 
to the joy in my life. Cause I, I just want it to be an addition, you know, not to make up for this lack in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose there's something to be said for, um, can you find, and this is not meant to be uh, judgmental or superior to, it's just sort of an open question um, for, for anyone listening is can, where can you find joy in the mundane? Because if you can find joy in the mundane, in your day-to-day stuff, in watering a plant that seems to be withering away, but after time you've actually brought it back to life. I don't know, just a random idea that came to my head. Uh, Because there are the things we can do that are really big experiences, like, oh, I'm going to take like a trip and go to Africa for a month or something, you know, Um, and all the buildup that comes with that. But then the trip is over. And if we want to experience more moments of our joy in the day, we have to become more accustomed to finding joy in the mundane. Yes. Wow, that was fucking um, wise. <laughs> I can relate. Sometimes the mundane is very hard because you're in the mundane and then all your thoughts come in and it's distracting. And we live in Western society where everything's fast paced and you have to move, move, move. And there's so very little time to just be present and be still. And and I think that's why when I think of the most joyful experiences, it's, it's up at the monastery where there's no distraction. Like you have to be present there and you have to be okay with yourself and your thoughts. Now that's, that's the real challenge there to be okay with yourself and accept yourself, accept mm. those thoughts and recognize that you are not those thoughts. You are not those emotions. You are a human being experiencing those things, experiencing this beautiful life. And there's so much joy in that experience if you know where to look. Well said. That's almost extrapolating on that is that if you can find more joy in the mundane, then it's possible that there's greater self-love, greater self-compassion, which leads to this empathy and like the the meditation example uh over 15 years ago i did a 10-day vipassana meditation retreat you know the first several days were painful like trying to sit for over 10 or 11 hours of meditation in the day and uh only eating two and a half meals a day and uh the not talking was easy i was quite happy not talking (laughs) um but the practice for me at that time and still trying to sit still and, and feeling pain on my back. But then, then with the practice and then with some of the talks that were given and the, the, the play in my head of trying to understand what I was looking to um, be comfortable with. And I guess be comfortable with is, is an example of the main mundane. Um, then I was able to overcome and recognize that the pain in my body was just a sensation. And what that was taught in, in the Vipassana is that, you know, sensa- you know, uh, whatever you feel on the body are sensations that arise and they pass. Now, some sensations last for a long time and some are very fleeting. Like the feels like I've got to scratch something on the side of my face. That's fleeting. I've got like a burning going up my back because I've been sitting still for 30 minutes and I feel like I need to move that that's sitting there for a long time. But there was a moment, there was 70 people at this meditation. Um, 
And I remember on, on the side, it was women on one side and men on one side. That's how they were doing it then. This woman had a cough and she kept coughing and 70 people in a room all quietly meditating. That goes, that's like, it's like, an, it's a, like electrical, right? You feel it going through one ear and out the other ear. It's like, it's like a current. And I started getting mad at her in my mind. And then I remembered the Dhamma practice of compassion. And I thought, she probably feels really embarrassed. She probably feels really upset. She's probably thinking I should leave because I'm making this uncomfortable for other people. And then I stopped feeling pain in my body. And while I had some discomfort for the next couple of days, I didn't feel the level of physical pain because I wasn't fighting inside anymore. And I had a Nirvana-like experience that was just like, whoa, where did I go? That was like the ultimate joy. Um, but it was a real lesson that speaks to what you said here that, you know, the joy in just being content, the joy in having peace of mind, the joy in recognizing that I can sit still and relax and come down and appreciate my day. Or like you said, appreciate through gratitude, um, whatever's recently transpired. Yeah. So Darren, I got chills from that story. First of all, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes, I'm like eating up every word. And what, what that makes me think of is this, what you resist persists. And, and I, when we resist for, for, I guess for you in this moment, you were resisting her cough. And as, as immediately as you embraced empathy and stopped resisting and leaned into that experience, your pain went away. Yeah. And in the same way, our emotions, when we resist our anger, when we resist fear or sadness, when we fight against it, instead of listening, honoring, learning what we need to learn from that, I mean, we can really resolve some of that emotional pain. Yeah. And no longer resist it. We just embrace and experience and be present and mindful throughout all of our emotions. Yeah. Right? Because they all deserve our mindfulness and attention. So, and it just like brings it back full circle. And I'm just, I love this conversation. Do we have to end this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, at some point. <laughs> you can always have a part two. Okay. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. I think that's a really an extended conclusion or epilogue, whatever it is you want to call it. Um, so where can people, I'll, I'll have this in the proper show notes when I, when I publish the full article, where can people find you, Nathan? Follow me on Instagram at queer conscious and that's C O N S C I O U S queer conscious and or queerconscious.com. Um, I do meetups in San Diego. Sometimes I do virtual events too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank yeah. You. Thank you for having me, Darren. This is great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that uh, you've made the time to be on this conversation and I'm just really happy with the directions that we've taken. It's been really informative and some good questions. You put me on the spot, which I don't mind. I was like, I was hoping for that. So Thank you. Good, good. Awesome. Thanks, Darren. Perfect. Thanks, Nathan. Mm -hmm.